Okay, let's see here. Uh, the Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, follows title character Bilbo Baggins as he takes over as captain of the USS Enterprise. No, wait. Okay, that's another thing. <laughs> this is Movie Bite, a weekly show where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, culture, and more. Today is Wednesday, December 19, 2012. I'm your host, TJ Draper, and I'm joined by my co-host, your friend, Joseph Darnell. Hello, everyone. Hey, Joseph. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. All right. Well, we have uh, just a couple of things to talk about, but I think it's going to take up, uh, well, you know, our, our whole normal length episode. Just, you know, just these two things. I think it's going to think it's going to do it. So why don't we get started? Yeah. So you uh, wanted to talk about the preview of the new Star Trek film coming out next summer by J.J. Abrams. And yeah. You, now, what, yeah. what this is, is uh, if you go to an IMAX screening, of the Hobbit, you get to see the full first nine minutes of Star Trek Into Darkness, and uh, I wrote a, an article about this uh, on Movie Bite Trek uh, TrekMovie dot com has been posting about it, and uh, so lo- lots of cool stuff going on. I, I know that some people have complained to me, man, Movie Bite's got a lot of uh, Star Trek news going on, and there's just been a lot of Star Trek news to report and to talk about it. And I'm kind of a Trek geek, so you know, uh, <laughs> you, do, you do what you can, I guess. So uh, anyway, uh, what we got is the first nine minutes, and I'll tell you, when, when it was over, uh, like I had kind of forgotten that we were watching a preview, and then when it got done, I'm like, no, I want more. <laughs> so, Well, I can totally respect that, because nine minutes, it could have, was it uh, nine minutes to the button, or was it like at the end of a scene? Oh, uh, no, no, it, it was, uh, I, I don't know. I didn't try time okay. it or anything. But, you because know, it I'd want my whole nine minutes if I were in the theater at that very moment. I think I would have started a timer just, you know, being the geek <laughs> in me. <laughs> but w- were you satisfied by the the general impression this film's intro is giving you? I mean, because, I mean, after all, you are the Star Trek fanatic around here. So, you're the yeah, one that no, they got to please. I think so. I mean, I, I wasn't all that pleased with the direction that the the first J.J. Uh, Abrams Star Trek movie took things. Like, I would have been just as happy... Uh, I would have been just as happy to to continue on with the next generation or something. Uh, I, I, I mean, and why are we going back to Kirk? I mean, we've been there, we've done that. But, you know, it's done. And so I'm kind of looking forward to this one and, uh, you know, just trying to... To figure out, you know, what this movie is going to be about, we, we we've done it, so now let's let's get into it. So, and it does look to me like it's going to be a better film. Um, now, so and and it did start out just like the film would with the logos, and uh, we we had. Uh, do you remember how the first Star Trek film started out with a, a sound very reminiscent of the bridge sounds of the original series, Bridge? Yeah, it's imperative that they keep some continuity here. Right. Well, the, the <laughs> sound and, and effects, the first if film, nothing else. <laughs> the first film kind of started out with that sound over black and resolved into stars, and then into a starship. This this one did the same thing. But then all of a sudden, we're in London, we see an alarm clock, we see a family going in to uh, visit uh, their sick daughter. And uh, it's obvious she's very sick, it's kind of a heart-wrenching story that you see unfolding. And there's, the, the, the interesting thing is there's no dialogue at all for like the first three minutes. And, but it's, just, you, it's still very moving, and then you hear kind of from the background, I can save your daughter, kind of a thing, from, uh, from, our, from what, what is obviously going to be our villain, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. So, and then we get to see, then we cut to Kirk uh, racing across the terrain of an alien planet, uh, and uh, 
he's chatting with Spock over the uh, over his uh, communicator, and then we see the uh, Enterprise underwater. <laughs> uh, it's hiding underwater on this planet. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna explain too much what's going on. We see Spock in a volcano. Um, you know, so lots of stuff to see. And then you know, it ends with uh, Spock is in a volcano, and they they have to make a decision: do they break the Prime Directive by letting the natives see them in the ship and getting Spock out, or do they let Spock die? And mm. uh, so that's kind of where it seems like an sudden, awful lot for the first nine minutes. It sounds like the finale of of something. No, no, it, it wasn't actually that much, it, it, but it felt like it was, it, as it should, the beginning of a movie. And then all of a sudden, it kind of fades to black, and then up comes the trailer and encourages you to come see the film in May. And it definitely had me hooked. I, I was ready. And do I, you think I it, liked it. But do you think that this preview is a bit early for the release of the film, considering it's several, several months away? Uh, it just seems I, like... I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing at all to whet the appetites and to get people hyped up. And I think one of their objectives, obviously, is getting this in front of The Hobbit. I mean, so many people are going to be seeing The Hobbit who may not know about Star Trek, the the film coming out next year. So it's a good move, I think, on their part. It's, an, it's a chance to get in front of a lot of people who might not otherwise know about it. I, I, I kind of disagree with you. I think that the motivation is a bit different from a marketing standpoint. I think that the marketers decided to pitch these uh, this preview ahead of the Hobbit's IMAX in 3D uh, showing because they were trying to sell it to uh, true geeks, people who would watch fantasy films, sci-fi films that would just go to the theater for any given uh, film of those uh, genres. I mm. think that that was the appeal personally. It's, I'm totally speculating here, but I mean, think about it. They're not showing it to all Hobbit audiences. They're just showing it to the IMAX and not just to IMAX in general, but specifically um, specific IMAX showings uh, involving more things that might matter to geeks, like the the 3D. And uh, now, did you, in your showing, it was 3D, yes, IMAX, but it wasn't the high frame rate. No, it wasn't. Oh, um, I haven't mentioned it up to now because I wasn't sure it was happening. We're supposed to have a guest, uh, Anthony Pascal, and it looks oh, like yeah, he yeah. just uh, accepted my friend request on Terrific. Skype. He's a little late in getting here, but uh, Anthony runs trekmovie.com, and we're going to see if we can uh, get him on the line. He's been keeping his finger on the pulse of this upcoming Star Trek film, Star Trek Into Darkness. All right. Well, Anthony, it's it's good to have you here. We, we did just start the show, but uh, we will... Um we wanted to talk with you a little bit about uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, the IMAX preview. And you've been uh, writing a lot, a lot about that over at trekmovie.com, and it's really exciting to me as a Trek geek. Joseph's not quite the Trek geek that I am, but uh, it's pretty exciting to me. It should be exciting to everybody. Anybody who likes movies, it's Star Trek. The new <laughs> Star Trek is, is, is not just about Trek fans. The whole point of the J.J. Abrams um, approach and this was seen in the 2009 Star Trek, is to make the Star Trek appeal to general movie fans, people just like summer popcorn action movies. And I think the nine-minute IMAX preview showcased that, you know, where everyone who saw The Hobbit, you know, we were hearing a lot of people applauding and, you know, not just Trek fans. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it. I definitely got the same sense. I think it was a little bit disappointing to me as a big Trek fan, the direction that J.J. Abrams went, but I think it does appeal to a lot more people. I know it se- seemed to have a broader reach, so I think you're definitely right about that. Now, um, one of the things I want to discuss before we get to the IMAX uh, preview, and I don't know what your time constraints are, but uh, the uh, original synopsis has been replaced, as you reported on TrekMovie.com, with a new synopsis. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. My, I mean, my feeling about the original synopsis was, uh, what in the world does it mean, detonate the fleet? And, and I just felt like it was a little bit of a bad copywriting going on there. And, and the new one kind of removed that. Uh, and the phrase in question here is, uh, when the crew of the Enterprise is called back home to find an unstoppable force of terror from within their own organization has detonated the fleet and everything it stands for, leaving our world in a state of crisis. And they've replaced that uh, with, a, with uh, talking about Kirk uh, going on a manhunt with, uh, of an unstoppable force of destruction and, and disobeying orders and stuff like that. How did you feel about the original versus the new synopsis? Um, well, you know, it's it, they're not actually replacing it. Um, it's just a different synopsis used for the one sheet. Oh, you, okay. you go to the Paramount Press site, you can actually download the original synopsis which was released two weeks ago or three weeks i forget or this new what they call a one sheet which includes stuff more information about you know the the cast and the crew and the release date um but i do think the newer one is more concise and 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 to the point i think the other one you know when we saw the interviews last week it was clear they've authorized Benedict Cumberbatch to describe himself as a, quote, terrorist. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to get the terrorist point across. I think the last one used the word terror like two or three times. It used the word weapon of mass destruction. I think they were kind of overcompensating, so they simplified it a bit. And, you know, so I think it's, you know, better written from a story kind of spoiler point of view. Um, I think the bigger issue was how it kind of implied that the bad guy wasn't working alone because they were saying something into the effect of, um, you know, they need to track down those responsible, those plural. Um, There was a mention of Kirk um, defying orders, which of course is a tradition for Kirk. Um, So yeah, almost uh, cliched for Kirk actually. Yeah, um, in a way. Um, and uh, uh, All in all, my impression has been positive about the reboot with by Abrams, but the thing for me is that because of Abrams' first film and the rise of this new one, me as a person who's not a Trekkie, uh, but just a, a, a general fan of good sci-fi and I didn't really grow up with Star Trek, but now I'm going back on Netflix and I'm watching The Next Generation. And I don't know, the more I get my feet wet with the old shows, and I also I'm watching the original series too, and the more I learn, the more I I guess I prefer the old versus the new. What do you think about that, Anthony? Well, you know, I don't think it is a case where you have to pick one or the other. I I... I could find something great in any Star Trek, even Star Trek Five. Um, <laughs> even you know. Yeah. Now, what about something- Star Trek the Motion Picture? <laughs> well, no, I like Star Trek the Motion Picture. I mean, I admit that when I saw it as a very young kid, it wasn't 
uh, it wasn't that exciting for me. I kind of got, you know, I had just become a fan of Star Trek and, um, you know, I was very young. And when I saw it, it wasn't the kind of fun adventure thing that I thought about Star Trek. And in a way, it took me becoming an adult to appreciate that film. And so one can say, you know, that the failing of that movie was to not appeal to younger audiences, but it's still, I think, a, a fine, epic motion picture um, with some very interesting themes. Uh, so getting back to the point, you know, you know, it isn't old versus new. It doesn't have to be. Um, it sure. can be old and new. And I think that, you know, I've argued this with some of my purest friends, and, you know, I'll say something which sounds funny coming from me, but in a way, all Star Trek motion pictures are pastiches to true Star Trek. True Star Trek, the greatest Star Trek is Star Trek on television. It comes from television. <laughs> right. Uh, it is a TV series, and some of the themes of Star Trek are best explored in television. Um, it gives you more time to develop characters. So in a sense, you know, everything about the movies has a bit of simplifying some of the messages and kind of right. overemphasizing things. But that is yeah. true of all the Star Trek movies because in every case you have to appeal to a wider audience um, than the core television watching fan base. Even at its greatest heights, uh, you know, in the early '90s, perhaps if every t you know if every person who watched Star Trek on TV bought a movie ticket and that was it, the movie would be a failure. You always have to appeal mm -hmm. to a wider base, and in so doing you know, some things will be compromised. And so the the trick is to do it in a way that still appeals to the fans at the same time. And uh, some of the films have been better at that than others. Um, you know, Wrath of Khan is a great example of something that works for a general audience and the fans. Star Trek 3 is something that works for the fans, not as much for the re general audience. Star Trek Four is something that works great for a general audience, sometimes not as much for fans because it's a little silly at times, although right. it's still a fan favorite. And I think J.J. Star Trek struck a good balance, um, especially if you think in context of where the franchise was at the time following Star Trek Nemesis. Yeah, it was dead in the water. Which just had a 10-year anniversary last week. And, um, you know, I, I, it's actually not my least favorite Star Trek film by far. I thought it was a good film, but it was clearly a uh, financial setback for the franchise from Paramount's point of view and um, did not play well with the general movie audience and they had to go in a new direction. There was no choice. There was no way they were going to do another Next Generation movie. Yeah, that, that certainly made me sad because I, I think Nemesis is one of the more underrated movies, uh, frankly. I, I don't quite understand what people's reaction against it was. Uh, I mean, I can see weaknesses in it. Don't get me wrong. And it, it, you know, there are movies far better in the Star Trek universe. But it kind of is what it is at this point. And we we have J.J. Abrams Trek now, for which we can be grateful. So, um, so now after the the getting back to the IMAX preview, uh, you know, I was just mentioning uh, before you came on that uh, I I watched it and I was getting into it and I'd forgotten that I was watching a preview and then it was over. You know, and, and you're moving on to the Hobbit and it was like, no, don't take it away from me. 
Um, what what do we know now though uh, about Star Trek? There's, uh, I think Abrams was very crafty. I don't think we know a lot more than we did. Well, the the opening, you know, people couldn't believe it when they're like, J.J. Abrams, the master of secrecy, is going to reveal nine minutes of his Star Trek movie after saying nothing about it for months, right? And but you know he's quite clever and. He figured out a way to show you nine minutes of a movie and not tell you anything, um, and yet get you excited about it. Um, and in a way, I you know I've talked to the writers about it, and you know it's kind of a combination of um, the beginning of Indiana Jones and a James Bond movie. It's it's just a a fun adventure um, teaser for the movie, but uh, you you know. You don't expect, you know, and spoiler alert, because, you know, we're talking about it, you know, all that stuff on the planet with the orange flowers and the <laughs> right. volcano and those, you, you get the sense that this is just a way for them to say, hey, the Enterprise crew is out, they're on their mission, they're exploring strange new worlds, they're having adventures, but, you know, I don't expect that that planet really, and those all of that factors into the rest of the movie. It's, it's, it's more establishing, um, uh, you know, the, the crew is doing what they do, which is right. They're out in space, having missions and having fun. I mean, if anything, the first minute, which had almost no dialogue with the family and the hospital and the little girl and the quick shot of the villain played by Benedict Cumberbatch, that clearly has more to do with the rest of the movie than the kind of fun adventuresome, bit um so you know we've learned a little bit um uh we've learned that the enterprise can survive underwater yeah uh, <laughs> which is actually the next question on my list is the enterprise a submarine now <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know the, the, obviously that caused quite a bit of debate you know and, and um at the bad robot party last week you know i asked the guys uh you know when you put that in the script when you know you knew that was a big deal. And they're like, oh, yeah, we knew. You know, They know when they're doing something that is going to be controversial. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. I'm sure they keep their finger on the pulse. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, on one hand, it looked beautiful. ILM did a fantastic job. It, it created some funny, interesting scenarios with Scotty and such. Um, and I'm okay with it. If a ship... You know, this is a ship built for interstellar travel at warp speed and space battles. So if it can, if the hull of the Enterprise is built to withstand photon torpedo blasts and phaser blasts, it can <laughs> probably handle a little water. Um, it's clearly airtight. Um, sure. And Scott is clearly not happy about it. So it's not like, and it was just sitting there in the water. It's not like they're, you know, running around like Captain Nemo, you know. So it was obviously lowered into the water, and then they're going to raise it up out of the water, which we saw in the first trailer. Um, yeah, and, and, and a lot of people are going on and on about all kinds. And I, and I mentioned a little bit, too, in an article I wrote. It's like, shouldn't there be steam billowing up from the hot engines and stuff? But uh, on the other hand, everything, in, well, not everything, but a lot of things in Star Trek are it, impossible, at least as far as we know at this point. So you kind of got to let them have a little leeway. <laughs> Yeah, and you know there is a funny thing about Star Trek. Star Trek has always had an emphasis on science and technobabble and such, and so people want reasons and they want you know more of a scientific rationale. If you think about other big budget sci-fi franchises, Star Wars being the prime example, 
Um, does anyone question even do they ever even talk about how the ships move in star wars they just do right right but in star trek we know everything about it we know antimatter injections and warp drives and we almost know too much about how the ship works right Uh, star um, trek tends to want to be grounded more in some sort of science and then you know star wars was really i consider it much more of a fantasy and not really science fiction right and so but but these guys are not, you know, and so people could argue whether they're doing too much Star Wars into Star Trek. But I think Star Trek was being dragged down by its own technobabble. And, you know, you talk to writers like Ron Moore about the show, mm-hmm. and they, they'll say the same thing, that it was, you know, th- that it was weighing down the show. Uh, and, and I completely agree. I mean, most of the stuff that I like about Star Trek is about the people and the characters and the interaction and the stories, not not the track no babble. I never cared about that. Right. And so, you know, but some people really like the track no babble. I mean, and there's books written about it, you know, and I respect that aspect of it. And I think, again, on the TV show, you can devote two or three minutes of dialogue here and there to um, you know, readjusting and reversing the flow of the flux and the yada yada. Um, and some people think that's great. Um, I don't think it's always necessary. Certainly not for a mainstream movie audience. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, speaking speaking of the Enterprise being underwater, it kind of reminded me a question that's not on my list, but uh, one of the things that I uh, I've, been, I've gone back and forth on my own mind is the look of the new ship, and I don't want to spend too much time on this. It's pretty much a side note, but uh, my favorite Enterprise version has always been the Constitution class refit. Uh, I, I don't know that I'm all that happy with Abrams Enterprise, but uh, what, what do you think about that? Well, I I, I would tend to agree with you that probably the most beautiful starship design. I think a lot of people would agree on this. And there's been these, uh, some friends of mine do this thing called the starship Smackdown every year at Comic-Con. And I think they've established that you can't even put the USS enterprise refit into it because it is clearly the coolest starship ever in any franchise. Um, And, so you know, I'm okay with the new Ryan Church design, but there's a weird thing they did, and my argument has always been <clears throat> that they they tried to it, clearly it honors Star Trek. I mean, there's there's ways they could have gone. It's got you know, if you squint your eyes, it's you know, and you look at it from a, a silhouette, it is the Enterprise. It's got two nacelles, it's got a engineering hull, mm-hmm. it's got a saucer, you know, it's, it's got all, all the signature there. components. Right. You know, so it's really down to the details and, um, you know, and the criticisms, as J.J. Abrams once joked, the criticisms come from the people who subscribe to Nacelle's monthly magazine. (laughs) And we um, we, in fact, mocked up a cover of Nacelle's monthly magazine just for a J.J. And he thought that was pretty funny. Um, And uh, but my main criticism is, in a way, they didn't make it different enough. And here's why I say that. What they did is they took the saucer from the design from the motion picture. If you look at the front of J.J.'s Enterprise, the Ryan Church design Enterprise, it is almost exactly the same, you know. And but then the back is completely different. And so when you're when a Trekkie's brain looks at it, it's it, it looks weird, and it's like the front doesn't match the back. 
if you know the back with the giant nacelles and everything is kind of a new different design and the front is the classic design and i think it creates kind of a mismatch in people's brains subconsciously if that makes any sense yeah so definitely wish My- that they match the back to the front better or match the front to the back better you know that they went more different or you know with a kind of entirely new design as long as it was still a saucer and not shaped like a triangle i mean but if you, you know what's interesting if you look back at some of the designs that was con- that have been considered in the past um like uh, you know there the first movie that almost happened for star trek the motion picture there was some designs I forget the designer's name, but it, you know, the ship had been radically redesigned. It looked nothing like it, you know. So, if you think about how you know, you know, they keep on saying you know Star Wars, but you know, it doesn't look like a ship from Star Wars. You know, it's not a triangle. You know, it doesn't look like the Millennium Falcon. It looks like a ship from Star Trek, and I think it's it's really, you know, a bit much for people to go. Oh, you know, it doesn't fit with Star Trek. It just doesn't, you know. People have different aesthetic aesthetics, and that's fine, you know. But yeah, my co-host is chatting with me here, reminding me we need to keep moving. So <laughs> we're we're kind of geeking out here. Um, the uh, the other questions I wanted to ask had to do with the villain. There's there's still a lot of debate. I mean, we think we know his name now, but do we even really? John Harrison is that is that been completely confirmed, or is that still speculation? Well, there's no <clears throat> there's no doubt that John Harrison is the name of the villain and that name is used in the movie. I could confirm that hundred percent. So, um, it isn't just a fake name that they put out there and said, you know, we're just calling him quote John Harrison for now. Um, so the, and yet, and I just sent out a tweet on this cause we did a, just did another poll. Only one out of three Trek fans thinks, thinks that's the end of the story. They think sure they're, you know, he's John Harrison, but, but, they also know, you know, maybe he's also someone else. Maybe it's an alias. Um, maybe he reveals himself to be someone else. Um, and, of course, everyone, and I've written a lot about this, knows that J.J. is a big fan of Christopher Nolan and how he's handled the Batman series. And if mm-hmm. you look at how J.J., what he's done with Star Trek, it's almost following the same pattern. In fact, Christopher Nolan pioneered the whole notion of showing nine minutes of a movie with IMAX with with uh, the Dark Knight, and he did it again with the Dark Knight Rises. So, um, you know, and the poster's the same. It's almost getting comical of how much the Star Trek series is mirroring Batman. I mean, they even have the word dark in it. It's ridiculous at this point. So, what is what were what was done in the first and the third Christopher Nolan movie was there was a character that had a name that was released to the press. And when you watch the movie halfway through the movie or late into the movie, that person goes, Oh, but really I am, you know, right. Liam Neeson says, shows up and says, Oh, well, you know, you thought my name was Henry, but really it's Raza Ghoul, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, exactly. and the same thing happened in the last one with his daughter. So, <clears throat> uh, that's kind of the, working theory for a lot of fans and then the debate goes so he really is what you know and and obviously there's various candidates con maybe another j 
genetic Superman like Joaquin or someone else, or it could be Gary Mitchell, although that seems to be falling in favor. It could be Robert April. Yeah, it was a highly favorable choice among Star Trek fans until recently. Uh, Gary Mitchell, I'd I say Khan is still the most popular. At least I don't know if it still is, but it was for a while. Well, no, actually... After the first trailer came out, we did a poll, and 51% thought it was Gary Mitchell. The reason why, they showed a picture of him in the Starfleet uniform, I think. But then after the second trailer, and they showed all those tubes Mm -hmm. with the windows on them, everyone suddenly switched to either Khan or another genetic, you know, Superman. Right, uh, and I think uh, part of the... But there's no consensus. There's no... Everyone's going, it's this. It's more like... um, yeah, if you look at the last polls, there's a, a wide variety. I think the big difference is Gary Mitchell went from fifty percent believing it to ten percent, but it isn't. It hasn't gone from a hundred to zero. I think part of the fuel on that fire too was uh, uh, Alice Eve's uh, character, the look in uh, the hairstyle. Everybody was saying, "Oh, well, she's the." And I'm, I can't remember the name of the character. I'm, I'm Elizabeth Denner. Yeah, that yes. was. I, I didn't. I never understood that. Like people were really going off her hair, saying. <clears throat> Yeah. Her hair looks like Elizabeth Denner, therefore she's Denner, therefore it's Gary Mitchell. Although that was a bit of a stretch, but then again, you know, you, people are working off little information. But I think people are having fun with it. Oh, definitely. And what's What I find interesting is, a year or two years ago, if you ask people, what do you think of the idea of it being Khan, for example, or even Gary Mitchell, people would say, oh, you know, we want something new, we want something different, we don't want a remake. Um now that people have seen elements of the movie, it's clear they're not remaking, let's say it's Gary Mitchell, they're not remaking Where No Man Has Gone Before. So if it is Gary Mitchell, they know it's not a remake. The same is pretty is true of Khan, because clearly the you know, from the everything we've seen, they're not remaking Space Seed, you know, Space Seed or Wrath of Khan, you know, because we've got Klingons and stuff on earth and stuff and it's clearly a different story so even if they're using a character we've seen before we're getting a new story and i think that's what matters to trek fans they just want something new and interesting and if it has classic characters they're okay with that and and um so that and that's to their credit is they're, they're kind of selling fans on something that i think fans would have been resistant with you know, uh, a year ago, but it's kind of, you know, fans are now warming up. So it's now more of a game of who is it, who isn't it. Um, yeah. And they're having fun with it. Man, there's so, there's so much more I want to talk with you about, but we, uh, we're this, this, the primary topic is supposed to be the Hobbit. So we're going to have to let you go. Uh, and I would love to talk with you more in the future, maybe, but, um, I'd be happy to chat with you guys. Good luck. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Anthony. Nice chatting with you both. Bye TJ. Bye Joe. Bye, Anthony. <laughs> Have a good All one. Right. An- Anthony from uh, trekmovie.com. Uh, you can follow the uh, you can follow him on Twitter at trekmovie. I think Anthony pretty much runs that account. So we need to move on to the Hobbit, and uh, I'm going to get. We have two guests on here. Hey, Marcus. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Wow, Marcus. Great. All right. Give Hello. me a second. Like yourself I get, in real uh, life. Let me get Clark on the line here. Hey, Clark. Hey. How's it going? Ah, it's going well. How are you guys? Good. Good to talk to you again. It's uh, <laughs> what was it, episode fourteen? I think it was that you were on. So, 
All right. Yes, uh, that sounds about right. Well, sorry for yeah. the delay there, guys. We were supposed to get Anthony on first thing, and I couldn't get him to respond, and then all of a sudden he called in, and I really wanted him as a guest, so we, we, we got him in there. So, he was a most fascinating interview guest. Yes, and I, I wanted so much more time with him. I was, I was un- <laughs> unfortunate that he called in later. But uh, anyway, The Hobbit. So how do, how do we want to proceed, Joseph? I'm gonna it was amazing. Back. It was amazing. <laughs> Why don't you, you start this. there? How about that? It yeah. was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's a great place to start. Uh, okay. like, I love what more needs to be discussed? <laughs> <laughs> All right. TJ, I think we've set it off. I think we're done. We're done. Hang it up. Let's <laughs> Good go show, home. guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, so, Clark, what did you think about The Hobbit? Well, just give a just give us your first impression, Clark. <laughs> That's a tall order. Okay, all uh, right. um, mine is a, a bit more reserved than Marcus's. It was fine. <laughs> um, it it was decent. I, I enjoyed it. Um, it was a significant step down from any one of the Lord of the Rings films, but considering that the Lord of the Rings movies are one of the most impressive cinematic accomplishments of the 21st century to date. That's not necessarily a terrible thing. Um, it, I, think it, I, I, I think liked more than I disliked, but um, I was disappointed in a number of ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm hmm. with you there. I definitely hmm. liked more than I disliked. How about Ooh, you, Joseph? So the conversational plot thickens. I'm loving this. I can't. I cannot wait to hear specifics from both Marcus and Clark. Um, I, I, you know what? Uh, you wrote the review about this on uh, the website there. I did. TJ, Everybody and, knows my opinion. Let's hear yours. Uh, well, mine. If I had to encapsulate it, I kind of feel like Clark, and I kind of feel like Marcus. <laughs> I, I kind of want to jump for joy, and then I also want to, you know, say, "Oh shucks, TJ, you know, uh, Peter Jackson, why'd you miss that step? Um, Come to the yeah. dark side, Joseph." <laughs> So do we? Know. You know, you've got Marcus, the outline, you've got the storyline, uh, Joseph, in the show outline. Do we really? I mean, who doesn't know? I mean, I've never read The Hobbit, and I know what it's about. So, do we really oh, need to recap uh, that at all? I don't know. I th- I think it's kind of worthy because, after all, there's a lot of people who aren't haven't read the books and they haven't seen the film yet. I a actually lot of people, did not read the book. Were you I'm, familiar with the premise of it? Well, I'm a child of the '80s, so when I hear Token, I think the arcade. Ah, oh, right, right, right. Well, hey, Clark, do you want to read over the storyline that we have there in the outline real quick and fill uh, the rest of our listeners in? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case we're leaving any, we don't want to leave any man behind. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I know um, the storyline now. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, good, Marcus. I'm glad you do. <laughs> Okay, let's see here. Uh, the Hobbit, an unexpected journey, follows title character Bilbo Baggins as he takes over as captain of the USS Enterprise. No, wait. Okay, that's another thing. Okay. Who is swept into an epic quest to reclaim the lost dwarf kingdom of Erebor, which was long ago conquered by the dragon Smog. Approached out of the blue by the wizard Gandalf the Grey, Bilbo finds himself joining a company of 13 dwarves led by the legendary warrior Thorin Oakenshield. Although their goal lies to the east in the wastelands of the Lonely Mountain, first they must escape the Goblin Tunnels, where Bilbo meets the creature that will change his life forever, Gollum. Here, along with Gollum on the shores of an underground lake, the unassuming Bilbo Baggins not only discovers depths of guile and courage that surprise even him, he also gains possession of Gollum's precious, a simple gold ring that is tied to the fate of all Middle-earth in ways Bilbo cannot begin to know. Dun, dun, dun. Wow, Joseph, good call on getting him to read that. I, I was just, I was enthralled just listening to him read that. 
All right. So, what did we like about this film? Let's start with you, Marcus. Uh, well, I saw it at forty-eight frames a second. I'm so sorry. The high frame rate. And I, <laughs> as oh. a film, as a filmmaker, I, I run CrownRights.org, but as a filmmaker, I loved watching it at forty-eight frames a second because it was the first time that I realized that our CGI abilities is better than our ability to do makeup. <laughs> That's funny. That it's is an true. interesting point. If you watched it at 48 frames a second, it looked cheap and gimmicky only at the live action scenes, but mm. the, the CGI scenes was amazing. And see, part of part of the problems, which I'll get to later, that I had was with the CGI. So uh, you're saying that the CGI looked better at 48 frames. Yes, it did. It did. It was w- a lot w- were there any exceptions, though, to that, Marcus? I kind of felt like, although you're kind of, you are right, I, I would agree <laughs> as well for the regular frame rate, but uh, were there any exceptions to that rule? Like, uh, I, in particular, one of my dislikes was uh, Azog. Uh, the orc warrior dude he just came across as i have no idea who that is he he was the white orc <laughs> we we have a question in the oh chat yeah the dude with the okay i got you for yeah. those li- listening live we have a question in the chat room what does cgi mean uh cgi stands for computer generated images yeah so, he, so those would be the totally computer animated uh right, it's, characters models. it's animation more or less but yeah. it's it's done in such a way cgi typically refers to although you can do computer animation that doesn't look real like uh, toy story and that would also be cgi typically it refers to something that's supposed to be real to life that's what cgi is yeah well i guess my disappointment with azog there marcus is that uh, on the note of the cgi was that the the cgi really does excel most of the time and th- i'm thinking about the goblin king in particular uh I-, I think that you couldn't have ha- done a better job with that character but when it came to the white orc or the the white goblin it seems like they they should have just gone ahead and used a a guy in costume like they did with the uh the other orc elf creatures that they had in the fellowship of the ring i forget what they were called but they should have just had a guy in costume because the the white orc just came across as looking uh kind of reminiscent of video game graphics by today's standards yeah i don't disagree but you're jumping ahead a little bit joseph we're supposed to be talking Uh, about and marcus is supposed to be telling us what he likes (laughs) oh i'm sorry i would have swore you said dislikes Uh, (laughs) okay (laughs) we'll continue on marcus oh yes i i liked the frame rate i'm probably one of the only ones yeah i mean i think you are and i I know there's arguments to be made but so so you liked it at 48 frames was there anything else distinctive or fun about this film that you really enjoyed i think i'm going to have to say the soundtrack mm, i'm with you there for it sure. was one of the only times i actually left the theater humming like an idiot <laughs> bum, 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 bum. That, well that yeah. you know for me it's that uh, bum, yeah. Bum, bum. Yeah. that was awesome man yeah and you're doing the boom it was amazing just right yeah. that's that's yeah. how we I all know, do man it. you gotta do it right it's definitely that uh, the the dwarf theme uh, that you were starting the notes of there. That is def- that definitely gets in your head. I mean, you can't, and it's it's really good. I'd say almost better than some of the themes in Lord of the Rings. It's uh, it's definitely better than than a Disney movie. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Clark, uh, how about you? What did what did you like about this film? Well, um, aside from the basic pleasure of returning to Middle Earth, which is a wonderful place as a whole to spend mm-hmm. some time in, um, I really like the choice of Martin Freeman as Bilbo Baggins. I thought he turned in a very nice uh, understated performance and uh, was a perfect fit for that role. Uh, 
the one sequence in the film that I will say I think is as good as anything in any of the Lord of the Rings movies is the Riddles in the Dark sequence with Bilbo and Gollum. Um, was a tremendous piece of filmmaking. Really well done yeah. uh, from start to finish. I liked that a lot. And Ian McKellen's performance as Gandalf, once again, uh, was a pleasure. I, I liked that quite a bit. And he actually got a bit more screen time in this film than he got in any of the individual Lord of the Rings films. So getting to spend a more extended amount of time with that character was most enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. All right, and I'll, I'll of course, oh, uh, I'll, I'll of course say the soundtrack as well is yeah another winner from Howard Shore. Yeah, and you you of course have the podcast, the Sounds and Sights of Cinema, so that would of course draw your attention. But I I definitely like the soundtrack as well. So, uh, <clears throat> Joseph, hmm, what did you like about this film? I am very glad that it, at the end of the day, Peter Jackson came back to direct it. It wouldn't have been the same without him. Yeah. I know that even if we had him as a producer, that we would have lost some of the characteristic that is his version of Middle Earth had we another director. And uh, I would also like to say that in addition to the new cast members, I was super impressed, not just by the performance of the returning cast members, but the fact that they fit right back into their roles perfectly. It seems like Gandalf hasn't aged a day by Ian McKellen. He, he in fact, they, they pull it off where you can believe that this is, I mean, if it weren't for Ian Holm, I think that we could have been convinced this, this trilogy were filmed before the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, oh, I think, yeah. I think the one thing that really stands out is Ian Holm. The, the man is obviously aged and I'm glad they got him back as older Bilbo, but see, that's funny. Uh, you say that I'll get to that in a minute. I didn't feel that way at all, but continue. Okay. Well, those just repl- reprising their roles developed their characters and influenced my impression of those characters. I, I, I never pictured Gandalf and Galadriel psychically whispering to each other or Saruman behaving like, uh, well, arguably a good wizard. <laughs> but I, mm. I was really convinced by those aspects in the film. I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, and as far as you know, it goes for me. I, I, everything that's been mentioned, except for the frame rate, uh, which I haven't seen at forty-eight, so I can't say definitively. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't like it. But um, you know, G- Gandalf's performance truly, to me, has always been the best of uh, the series. Ian McKellen playing Gandalf of, of Lord of the Rings, and even here, I would say maybe even better. Like, like he he came back to this role, and I know that he was concerned, Ian McKellen was concerned that, you know, it's been 10 years and he's in his 70s, how is he going to pull this off? And maybe he overcompensated, but it was certainly not worse. It was almost better than the performance of in Lord of the Rings, and so I really enjoyed it. I mean, he's just such a fantastic actor, and uh, Gandalf is such a fantastic character. So I definitely enjoyed that. And, and, and as you said, Clark, uh, Martin Freeman as Bilbo was absolutely perfect. I mean, just you, you couldn't have asked for a better Bilbo. Mm-hmm. Um, and the riddles in the dark sequence and seeing Gollum again and just so, um, you know, he's such an appalling character, but he's such fun to, to watch and to dig into. Uh, so riddles in the dark does stand out. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Middle Earth in general is just fun. Oh, and, and you, as you mentioned, the soundtrack, just phenomenal. I mean, I wasn't, I haven't been all that impressed with Howard Shore's other work, um, in regards to, like, just as an example, there are other works that I've not been impressed with, but the Twilight, uh, Eclipse, I believe it was Eclipse that he scored. He scored one of the Twilights in any event, and I, 
I wasn't all that impressed. It felt like he was repeating himself and not very well Yeah, inspired. he did, yeah. But the, this felt, you know, funnily enough, and maybe it's because it was okay to repeat himself, and he, he did at, some, at times bring in the themes from The Lord of the Rings, but there was a lot of new stuff here and a lot of stuff that was appropriate. Um, yeah, it was very inspired. In so. fairness to Howard Shore, it must be challenging to find much inspiration in the Twilight franchise. Uh, <laughs> let, let, we're not, not going to go there. Uh, we're not going to go there. Uh, I, I think I have a. I, I don't think it's like the finest films ever. I said we're not going to go there. <laughs> no, but, it, it, it's 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 a cheap joke on my part. Okay, but, all right, yeah. all right. Let's not go there. So. <laughs> Forgive me, I'm getting over a cold, so... It's pretty, it's pretty simple to make a joke. All you gotta do is throw Twilight out. <laughs> it's cheap. Yeah. Uh, all right, so... Um, <laughs> so let, let's talk a little bit about what maybe we didn't like, and then we'll I think we'll go into some general discussion after that. So what, what didn't we like about this film? And uh, let's see. Let's start with Clark. Okay. Um, dislikes. Well, first of all, there's some significant tonal issues. Uh, the Hobbit as a book is a much lighter, uh, much more kid-friendly book, honestly, than mm-hmm. The Lord of the Rings. And that tone at times is reflected in the movies, but you can also tell that Peter Jackson really wants this to feel like another Lord of the Rings film, so he takes things in a right. serious, dark direction whenever he gets an opportunity, and the clash between the uh, kind of goofy nature of parts of the movie and the very serious, you know, sort of portentous nature of the scenes that are trying to feel like Lord of the Rings is a bit awkward and doesn't always work. Um, now, I'm very curious there, Clark. What you're describing, I, I kind of agree with, but how how do you think he could have done that differently? How would he have brought this to general audiences if it had a significantly different tone from Lord of the Rings? How would he have pulled that off? That's an issue I think he'll have to raise with Mr. Tolkien. But uh, uh, yeah. the, the, fa- the fact of the matter is that he's tried to make another Lord of the Rings movie, but he doesn't have the existing material to support another Lord of the Rings franchise. So that's why uh, essentially he's had to pad a lot of stuff and make a lot of stuff up, which brings me into my other uh, sort of central dislike with this movie is that it feels like we've gotten a significantly extended cut of what should be the official movie uh, released in theaters. There's really no reason that this first installment of the Hobbit series needs to be anywhere near as long as it is. The scenes feel padded uh, on quite a few occasions. The pacing is a a lot more sluggish than the Lord of the Rings films were. I completely and totally agree, but I will get to that when it comes my turn. Did you have anything else? Uh, Haters. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I can continue, but I might touch on some of the other things in general discussion. But those were really the two big things that I think uh, are, are really holding this back. Okay. Clark is going all critic on us. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> Where'd you get this guy from? Rotten Tomatoes? What's wrong with you guys? Yeah, so Marcus, how uh, was there anything you didn't like? I know you were really jumping up and down with the uh, rah-rah a minute ago, but was there anything you didn't like? It ended. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. I, I, I really didn't like the fact that I was going to go see it opening night, but I spilt mustard on my Hobbit costume, and that was going to be really embarrassing, so I had to wait a few days till it got dry cleaned and I could go back and see it. Okay. Well, uh, there you go. So... Now, 
I am speechless. (laughs) You want want a serious answer? Okay, I'll give you a serious answer. I thought like I didn't like that with the 48 frames a second. You could see the... uh, the the movements of the cameras it was kind of awkward mm-hmm. it, it was a lot of awkward moments and and uh it seemed like you were watching a play at times yeah no right. you're just talking about the stellar clarity that it looks like some the something that was actually staged right before you nothing appearing filmatic more more like well real life is that what you mean i think it just took some time to get used to i think halfway through it was okay but the first half was like jarring to watch because of the clarity of it Hmm. okay joseph well uh i already mentioned the white orc i won't go back there um uh let me think. It, it, to be honest, I feel like I'm being nitpicky, though, with any of my dislikes, but I've always had a problem that Rivendell is supposed to be a, a significant outpost for the elves, and it seems like no one lives there. <laughs> uh, you know, any time they have a wide shot, you see the beautiful landscape and the buildings and their passageways and their walkways and their streets, but you don't see anybody living there. Okay, I, I, that is my my most nitpicky uh, dislike. Uh, but besides that, I thought that uh, I connected better with characters in the Lord of the Rings films. Each one, I felt like I was I very familiar with Bilbo. In just the Fellowship of the Ring, and I really appreciated him as a as a as a person. And this film, although the performance excelled by all the actors, I felt like the story and the way it was told uh, it kind of impersonalized some of the relationships the audience has with main characters. Um, for instance, I actually had a better time of connecting to Thorin than any other main character in the film. And, and, and least of all, uh, Bilbo should have been, I thought, uh, uh, there should have been a better connection there. Um, I would say that in how Bilbo was presented is inferior to the way Frodo was presented in the other trilogy. And, and that's a rotten shame. That, that shouldn't be. Um, they should have been at least equals. And in many ways, I, I respect Bilbo as a character more than I do Frodo. So why is it that he doesn't outshine Frodo or even come close? Um, besides those two things, I felt very annoyed by a crazy number of times where the heroes should have suffered significant injuries and didn't. <laughs> I understand that uh, this is... Um, a present issue in this in this particular film and probably going to be in the next two because of the storybook quality that this is based after a child's book i mean a children's book um but since the story has been adapted so well to fit the middle earth of lord of the rings in this film i was just annoyed by the number of unlikely events that happened in an unexpected journey (laughs) And that kind of goes back to the tonal disconnect, too, is you have this very ominous, violent tone, but because of the nature of the story, that's really not going to turn into anything very often. <laughs> kind of like a roller coaster ride where they always uh-huh. promise you this one's going to be thrilling because, look out, you could die, and uh-huh. no one ever dies. <laughs> 
And that's why Joseph hates roller coasters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So for what I didn't like, and, and first of all, I missed something that I did like. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going to take that liberty to go back and uh, and say it. And that was in, in Lord of the Rings, I really felt like the tone of Elrond, who's, who's played by Hugo Weaving, was off. Like, just wrong. Like, I, I, I kept hearing uh, Mr. S- uh, Agent Smith from The Matrix and not Elrond. In this film, I felt like, and, and my wife felt the same way, and she's a huge fan, by the way, uh, Elrond was far better presented. Hugo Weaving did a much better job, and I really liked that. That was so much better. So, uh, anyway, so that was some... Uh, now, now, getting to my dislikes, um, I actually had the opposite problem with Bilbo than you did, uh, uh, Joseph, which is that I felt huh. like he looked like he was younger than he was. And I, I, I like uh, I don't know if that was the makeup or something, but I thought I remembered him being a little bit older in the Lord of the Rings, and now Ian Holmes, Bilbo, feels like he's younger. And and you know I know why they're doing that is because he's not supposed to have aged a day since he got the ring, so they're already cheating and messing it up by getting Martin Freeman to play a younger Bilbo. <clears throat> so, but it just it just felt wrong to me. It just felt off. So anyway, uh, that was my complaint there. Uh, in, in terms of, I think, I'm, I think I'm addressing the same thing that Clark is addressing when I say that at times it felt like it was trying to be too epic. And I think that is the same complaint that you're addressing, Clark, with the tone of the film, which is trying to bridge this gap between the children's story that was The Hobbit and the epic, you know, world... Uh, save Middle Earth clash that was going on in the Lord of the Rings. Right. There's a difference between going on a quest to to collect a bunch of gold and right. trying to save the world. Um, right. In the it other felt, trilogy, it felt like it was being at times trumped up too much. Like, like it's just a little much. What are you doing? You know, back it off a little bit, and then you, you oh, it's just a quest, and it's fun. But instead, I think they're trying to match that epic scale of the Lord of the Rings, and I think they pushed it too far a couple of times. Uh, and then <clears throat> totally had the same observation. Ask my wife. I'm not just parroting you, Clark. And and that <laughs> is that. Um, wow, way too fat. Way uh, so much stuff. And as an editor, I'm a, I'm a video editor, and so I look at this and I go, "Oh my goodness, let me in the cutting room. Let me cut some <laughs> of this out." Um, like 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 the uh, the thunder uh, uh, rock uh, sequence. Uh, there's a name for it. I'm, it's thunder something. Uh, the thunderstorm it's a thunderstorm where the the mountains are fighting each other and that wasn't even in the book in that way what what did you insert that in there it was a completely pointless scene it was uh, there for awesomeness <laughs> okay well it's not awesome if it's pointless so uh yeah it it, it was definitely uh too long way too long um and and it feels like we skipped over i mean what are we, uh, i fear the extended editions of these movies <laughs> um, i have to agree with you there it felt like we were served the extended cuts yeah and that that was just uh and, and i you know cut. just wait till you get the real extended cut right exactly <laughs> the the lord of the rings uh i i, I kind of have this thing with the lord of the rings where i feel like the extended cuts are too long and the theatricals are too short and i wish there was a middle ground and we've just skipped all that, and we've gone straight to the two long cuts in the theaters with The Hobbit. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, and then my only other uh, complaint was the uh, some of the CGI. I, I feel like they just didn't have the time or the budget or something to do the final render. Some of it was great. Some of it was great. But then especially, like, my an example is the White Orc. He did not feel finished. He did not feel like he had any detail. Uh, his He was just very poorly done, I thought. Uh, I, I felt like I was looking at a pre-render. So yeah, 
I, I, I totally agree. Maybe Peter Jackson will uh, touch that up for the Blu-ray. I don't know. I, I hope so. And, and I guess that, that <laughs> do you? Speaks to, I, I guess that speaks to my larger disappointment with uh, the the idea that they've used a lot more CGI. None of the orcs. My, I'm given to understand, and you feel free to correct me if I have this wrong. None of the orcs or any of the, those sorts of creatures were practical at all. That was all CGI. So um, I, that disappoints me a little bit. I, I feel like the, the CGI has come a long way, but you know, the more realism you can, the more real things you can have in the film, the better. So, I, ha- I have a question. We didn't have this in the outline, but I feel like it's only fair to do it because of the the epicness that is this film. Uh, I, and why don't we cover any other observations besides the normal th- likes and dislikes? I, I have one or two other observations, just general observations. Anybody have some? Uh, Clark, you want to pitch in? Sure. Um, one is that uh, I, I'm not really sure, even though I enjoyed the character on his own terms, I'm not really sure we needed the inclusion of Radagast the Brown. Mm. Um, it seemed like an awful lot of effort to go to just to get Gandalf that sword, um, particularly spending you know five or six minutes having him revive a hedgehog and deal with <laughs> that. Reviving the hedgehog Some spiders crawling long. on the roof. But. but I think I understand why they included him, though. I mean, because it certainly, he, you know, if you look at Tolkien's larger work, I mean, I think there's some allusion to kind of what happened there or whatever. Right. But, um, you know, I think, I think the idea was to try to tie in and get him in a little bit more with the necromancer who is Sauron. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And trying to tie that in a little more. I'm not com- disagreeing with you necessarily. I just I think I know why they did it. Why but I mean that, that that stuff feels like the sort of material which would have worked better on an extended edition uh, release because the scenes in and of themselves are interesting. But uh, I think for the theatrical release, they're you know maybe a little unnecessary. Yeah, when they started off with Radagast, I was concerned he was going to be the equivalent of Tom Bombadil, but, you know, Tom Bombadil was skipped for Lord of the Rings, so why would you include him in this film? And then part of me wondered if maybe they just included him because they wanted to maintain a little bit of an illusion that this was more or less like the childlike story that it was based after. It definitely felt like that, uh, because even though Lord of the Rings is in a fantastical world, um, a a man with bird poop in his hair who rides around (laughs) on a sleigh pulled by giant magic bunnies is is pretty fantastic. It did not occur to me that that was bird poop until somebody today told me that, and it totally ruined it for me. Oh my, I don't think I got that either. I got the bird nest, but uh, it, it, the, the yeah, I hadn't considered that other portion <laughs> that might be in with the bird nest. <laughs> now, 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 Marcus, uh, obviously you're a super duper fan, so you know what? What other things really did you want to observe? Have you observed? Uh, well, I I really liked. Uh, I I think one thing that uh was really good i think was uh that scene with Gollum. no no how, how what do you what exactly are you referring well, to just a scene with uh with uh, the hobbit with bilbo baggins and, and Gollum. I see i'm not re- as familiar with the book either so and from my perspective not being familiar with the book i felt it was very faithful to his character in lord of the rings and i really appreciated their execution of that clark what did you think about that i was wondering uh about well, you know, just how they executed the scene with the transfer of the ring, Gollum doing the riddles game with 
with Bilbo. It, it, it was, as I mentioned earlier, I think the best sequence of the movie. And interestingly, um, the only sequence in that movie that really legitimately feels like something from one of the Lord of the Rings films, and, and there's a reason for that, which is that that sequence in the book wasn't uh, initially a part of The Hobbit. It was something Tolkien went back and added later um, to make the book fit with Lord of the Rings a little more comfortably. And uh, the difference in tone definitely shows up in the film as well as in the book. Mm, okay. Now, Marcus, what were you saying? I forgot. <laughs> but you like the scene. What, what was it about oh, the scene? Oh, Gollum. Yeah. I don't know. It was just very intriguing with me. The way they did Gollum with the CGI looked really good. It and did. It, Actually, it you're looked really right. good. That was probably one of the best looking scenes in the entire film that you forgot you were watching in 5K. That was definitely one of the best CGI scenes for sure. So. Yeah, absolutely. The, the CGI was sort of hit and miss for me, but Gollum was fantastic. And you'd think they would know how to do him by now, so you would expect that. But uh, well, yeah. yeah. And 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 Gollum, like I've said, like I said earlier, Gollum is just a fantastic character to be on screen. I mean, you love to hate mm-hmm. him, you know. Yeah, yeah I, I really, I really hope they extend that scene by about three hours for the extended. Extended. Well, you, you're you're edition. hardcore, aren't you? Yeah, riddle well, it, man. Those riddles could have gone on and on. And on. I, I will say it almost did feel like a self-contained one-act play of sorts. Uh, yeah. For a while, once we were pretty deep into that sequence, I had almost forgotten about the uh, dwarves battling the goblins uh, wherever they were at the time. Oh yeah, totally. It, 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 because it's such an immersive scene, but. Um, which which is another thing I, I wanted to mention, and I, I was curious to hear. Your, what you guys there, thought about this. There were dwarves in this film? <laughs> well, allegedly. <laughs> okay. They, they never really... They never really came together as characters for me. Uh, in The Fellowship of the Ring, yeah. I felt like by the time that movie was over, I really knew each individual in that group. By the end of The Hobbit, um, I certainly couldn't name the dwarves and mostly knew them as, okay, that's a uh, fat dwarf and exactly. Santa Claus dwarf and yep. uh, warrior dwarf and so on. But they, very few of them really emerged as distinctive characters in this film. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I, I had kind of hoped, um, even though I've read like half the book and just, I, I couldn't, uh, this is, this is going to be sacrilegious to those of you who love The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and Tolkien, but I find the actual books to be dull. <laughs> like, there's way too much detail there that I don't care about. So I only made it through half of The Hobbit. But, but I was hoping that with the films, I would get to know the dwarves a little more and be able to name them and, and that sort of thing. And I certainly didn't. I couldn't tell you, except for Thorin. I couldn't tell you which dwarf was with. Oh, and maybe Keeley. But other than that, I couldn't tell you which dwarf was which. Um, two things that I, uh, I wanted to observe that kind of go hand in hand uh, is that, one, when they brought Radagast into the story, I didn't need the little uh, rabbit trail <laughs> where they took him all the way to Mount's. Uh, wait, what was wait, that wait, place? Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I missed my opportunity. Rabbit trail. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, <Yeah>. you're horrible. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> okay, I, I'll, I'll go back to my corner over here now. Yeah, conti- <laughs> <y'all>, continue. <laughs> well, what was that uh, um, broken down, dilapidated part of Mordor or whatever it was called? Uh, 
You know the place where Radagast went and saw creepy things at a broken down old uh, fortress, and no, I know what you're talking about. Thought he saw a a ghost, but he wasn't sure. And then he reported that to Gandalf, and it just didn't seem like it belonged in the film. Although it was entertaining, I was kind of think thinking to myself that that just that little escapade didn't belong. And it was a foreshadowing of things pertaining to Sauron, obviously. But this movie isn't about, or the story isn't about Sauron. And from the the source material alone, I bet you that that was one of the bigger contrivances that was introduced into the film. Because when Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, he did not have in mind for uh, the story of Lord of the Rings. So he had not fleshed out characters like Sauron. He didn't have Sauron and Radagast uh, come that close to an encounter with each other. We have no reason to believe that Sauron is even capable of being a ghost if he cannot take on a physical form. Even later, when he has the power of the ring coming back to him, he is uh, he is trapped into the top of the tower as a big freaky eyeball. Yeah. So and why I've, is he appearing as a ghost? I've always been somewhat confused. Even though I love the Lord of the Rings and I've, I've loved the Hobbit, uh, as far as that goes, I, I've always been a bit confused about the nature of Sauron and 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 what can he do and what can he not do? Where can he go? What you know what I'm saying? Like. And you're totally right. Like, if he's the necromancer, then why is he trapped on the tower in Lord of the Rings? I, I don't quite get it. Yeah, and that was my other point, was that the necromancer was cast uh, by, uh, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who yes. is Sherlock Holmes on the new BBC show. And I love his performances. And when I heard that uh, Benedict was going to be in this trilogy, I got kind of excited. It was like, oh, so are they actually going to incorporate some prologue backstory where the necromancer is seen? Um, and I just assumed that would begin in this film because he's in the credits. But in the film itself, he's not in the film. I mean, I don't think that we probably even heard his real voice, but uh, he's in the credits, right? Uh, Yes, he is, and apparently he's also playing Smog as well, even yes. though we saw even less of that. Um, oh, really? Yes. Oh, I can't wait for that. Interestingly, hmm. as a tie-in to the earlier portion that went too long of the show, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is also the villain in the upcoming Star Trek film. Indeed. I know, that guy's getting around. He's the man with the most marvelously British-sounding name of all time. Yes. Now, Clark, <laughs> were you trying to interject and say something about um, uh, Sauron a minute ago? Oh, no, I was well. I was going to say uh, Radagast. Uh, it's worth noting that he is actually only mentioned in passing in the Hobbit, the book, right? Um, but uh, has been fleshed out based on some notes from uh, Tolkien's appendices, right? Uh, for <laughs> for this film, yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, does anybody else have any topics they'd like to cover? I have. A, we have a few on the show notes here. That yes. We get to. Well, yes. Let's get to the. the let's get to those. I high specifically. Yes. Let's, let's find out what, how uh. we feel about high frame rate. I know how I feel. I think most of the movie by audience is going to know how I feel. I think we know how Marcus feels. <laughs> uh, Clark, how do you feel about high frame rate? I wish I could have much of an, a definitive opinion. I certainly uh, and am, am inclined to feel negatively towards it based on what I've read and the research I've done, but not having actually seen the movie with my own eyes, I feel like anything I say would just be speculation on my part. Um, I've certainly read far more negative things about it than positive, um, but but no, I, I couldn't offer 
any kind of legitimate opinion since I, I really just haven't seen it for myself. Joseph? I have not seen a high frame rate, but I'm looking forward to it because I I think that when you're dealing with brand new technologies like this, the filmmakers are making their best guess as to how to best implement it. And I think that the re, the what it really serves in this case is to improve the quality of 3D. When you have 48 frames per second, the pictures uh, each individual frame of the film can be a cleaner frame it can be more focused it, there's not as m- many um, mo- there's not there's practically no motion blur and because that is Precisely. the case the 3d can look all the more clean it can look all the more easy on the eyes and while some people might argue that 3d is just a gimmick and it's unnecessary and i'd have to agree with them most of the time i i'm not opposed to it I think that 3D is a growing medium as well. It's going to get better. It's just not arrived yet. And the same thing would be true of of this new frame rate. It serves the 3D. I just don't know if it ultimately serves a good film. But at the same time, it seems to me that most people in general audiences are just not going to, they're just not going to care. They're not going to notice the difference that things like a high frame rate will make. See, I'd have to disagree. I think that the difference is subtle, or that it's hard. The difference is hard to define if you haven't studied it. And I haven't seen The Hobbit in forty-eight frames per second, but I have studied frame rate, and and I I am a twenty-four frames per second advocate. And um, the reason is, and and, and you have to, you, it's not just twenty-four frames per second. You have to consider shutter angle and shutter speed and all these things. We don't. Okay, just as and I wrote an article about this, which I'll link in the show notes. But just as a point of experiment. Place your hand, oh, just sort of an arm's length in front of your eyes, and then wave your hand back and forth. And what you see is motion blur. You're not perceiving each individual image of your hand. You're perceiving a blur. But what you have at 48 frames per second is you, and you have to compensate, uh, you have to change shutter degree and all these things uh, in order to uh, to film at 48 frames per second. You have much less motion blur, and this does this does create cleaner images. Um, you know, if you were to look at and inspect each individual frame of that film, you would find very clean and pristine images. But I, this is precisely why it looks faker and not better to me, at least. Uh, and that that is because you're not perceiving it with a, a, the cinematic quality that is inherent in, in 24 frames per second with the shutter set properly to allow for motion blur. As movement happens, motion blur occurs, and you don't have that at 48 frames per second, and it's very uncinematic. And so that that's why, as as a as a student of these things, I am. I am a, a uh, advocate of 24 frames per second. In fact, uh, we used to shoot when I at, at the small film company I worked at. We used to shoot a lot of stuff on uh, Canon XL1s and XL2s, and that was all done at 30 frames per second. And you can even see the difference; it's less cinematic. And then we got, got into HD cameras, and we started shooting at 24 frames a second. You know, and combined with the correct shutter settings, you achieve a much more cinematic feel. And that's always what we were striving to do. And so I find it very strange, and I'm sorry, I know I'm monologuing, I'll stop in a minute. I find it very strange that now we're going the other direction, and and we're saying, we're going to cinema, but we're going to make it look like this. We're going to make it look cheap, and we're going to, you know, and... Yeah, read read the article. I'll link it in the show notes. But uh, that's how I feel. And and Marcus, I welcome you to defend uh, forty eight frames per second. I I would be uh, happy to hear. 
entertain uh, the opposite opinion? Well, I think uh, for the first time, I think that it was a 3D film that I was actually like, I, I knew it was 3D. Like I, I saw Avatar in 3D and, and it wasn't that special. But when I watched this in 3D, like I was, I, I actually felt like I was watching something different. Okay. Like it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a movie. Like I was moved. I was moved. Yeah, okay. there's I a, that. There's emotion in those extra frames. Yeah, yeah. It's like I had to get up and go to the bathroom because I had a large Coke. Oh, that's taboo, my friend. And when I stood up, like I was dizzy, and I knew, I knew that it worked right then. (laughs) Okay, they they should put that in the commercial. You don't, you you don't get dizzy, you know, from from cheap CGI induced 3D. But guys, they shot this on 48 (laughs) red epics. 48 red epics that that does you know i could go into a whole film versus digital uh media acquisition but i I don't want to bore our audience suffice it to say i'm also an advocate of celluloid yeah well you didn't shoot anything in 48 red epics no no i didn't (laughs) so i I can't admit i've never shot on a red i don't have a million and a half dollars to spend on the gear and stuff that would that's that's amazing to me that it was shot like that and and I think I think we can look at this and, and we can nitpick and we can complain or we can sit back and be like, man, Peter Jackson did something nobody did. Nobody's done that. And I think he, he upped the game. It's like when Google introduces a new Nexus phone, it's way better than everything else. And, and Joseph, they force the hardware. I want to know who you've brought on my show who's advocating Google products on my show. Get him off. Uh, we're, we're just uh, – uh, uh, he, he's the ag- in the uh, the antagonist on the show and um, – <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, my. All right. Well, not if you're uh, Peter I, Jackson, I suppose. Ah, right. Hmm. True. All right, well, well, well so say. that's a good segue. Uh, boy, we're, we're going to run long here, I think. But I think that's okay. This is a big film, and it deserves a lot of talk. Um, and, a three-hour uh, film deserves a few extra minutes of a podcast. <laughs> um, that leads us kind of into a, a talking more, not just about high frame rate, but about 3D. And the question that we've posed in our outline here for all of us to answer is, did 3D improve the viewing experience? And this I can speak to definitively, because I did see it in 3D, and I did see in 2D. I saw it first in 2D with my family, with my six-year-old son, and with some friends, and uh, and then I saw it in 3D in IMAX, and I will say I loved seeing it in IMAX. It was, a you know, the big screen and got a, you know, got a seat that wasn't too close but not too far away and really enjoyed the largeness of seeing that on the screen, but I still feel like, I've said this before, and I sound like a broken record, but I still feel like 3D is such a gimmick. It did nothing to improve the storytelling for me. And 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 not, not only that, every time I see a movie in 3D, I go out of the theater with a headache. So, I I really I'm not enjoying 3D and 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 while I will say I didn't get as much of a headache with this film as I did with Wreck-It Ralph, uh the, which is the previous film I saw in 3D. I I just I I just don't see what it benefited. So, I'm generally neutral to a great number of things like you know, I think that things like ooh, uh, costumes and set dressing are very neutral things that as long as they pull off the trick of tricking our imaginations into their believability, then they, they're they really working, right? 
And obviously, the Hobbit's not trying to break new ground by changing up set dressings and, uh, you know, shake things up a little bit in the wardrobe department. They're trying to do those things that are tried and true. And then over here, they're trying to explore, you know, what a lot of films are this past decade with, with 3D and now the frame rate. I think that for me, frame, the 3D aspect, again, it's a young, it's a young, uh, uh, what is it? It's a young ooh, device employed to films uh, these days. And, and there's not many other things like that in films. I mean, you got to think back to when sound was added to motion pictures. I, I have to agree with um, one of our other show hosts, Michael. He's made the point that when stereo sound was incorporated and they had the tracks where you could hear actors talking and they had sound effects and stuff, motion pictures for more than a decade struggled to find the way to tell movies effectively with sound in addition to just soundtrack. Uh, because they always had music, but they, they, you know, back in the day with silent pictures, but when they added sound, it changed everything. And actors, directors, produ- uh, pr- productions just didn't know how to handle that for a long time. Now, did general audiences revolt? They did. A great number of them disliked it. But ultimately, it, it, in the long run, it has complemented the medium. I mean, <laughs> obviously. So for me, sure. I'm just, I'm kind of a, I'm looking at 3D and the whole frame rate biz with curiosity. I I don't know what to think of it yet because I'm I'm suspecting that in the long run it's really going to improve things. Now for the moment, if, I will, if, I, yeah. if 48 frames per second is the new sound, then 60 frames per second is color. Yeah, mm. <laughs> whatever that means. I'm not sure. <laughs> But I have I'm, to agree I'm, with you, Marcus. I've, I've thought I've thought that for a while, and uh, well, I get here's here's my only other observation I want to make about 3D is that because it was so clean, thanks to the frame rate, things that were three dimensionally posed on the screen looked like a series of poster boards standing in front of each other and moving around each other. Characters looked like they were uh, poster board cutouts. Uh, just a lot of them, kind of like a pop-up picture book, only coming to life on screen. It was it was kind of strange. Um, I got used to it. I accepted it pretty quick because I, I knew what to be expecting for about a year. I have to say uh, I'm with TJ uh, to a large extent on the 3D thing. Uh, it does feel like a gimmick to me. It's not something that's being driven by filmmakers really wanting to experiment with new ways to make movies so much as it is by studios wanting to find ways to make more money. Uh, the reason 3D it continues to be as persistent as it is is because they're able to add a few dollars to every movie ticket and inflate their box office revenues. And I have to say, I can probably count on one hand the number of movies I've seen, and I've seen quite a few, Um which have been genuinely enhanced by 3D. Uh, for, for the most part, it does feel like a gimmick, and there are those rare occasions where the filmmaker really takes the time and effort to find ways to integrate it into the movie in a successful way, but for the, for the most part, it's a nuisance, and if they change things around and started charging more for 2D than they did for 3D, I'd, that's a surcharge I might consider paying. Um 
Uh, I don't I'm, think that I'm, T- 2D will go anywhere anytime soon. No, I, I, I don't think it will, but uh, for the most part, I've been frustrated with 3D. Every now and then, a movie like Hugo or How to Train Your Dragon will come along and really sort of demonstrate the potential of 3D. But uh, very, very few filmmakers are actually tapping into that potential. And it, it's not something that I see improving in a dramatic way anytime soon. Hmm. Marcus, you care to add? It's, it's going to be hard your it's, position. It, it's going to be hard to top the Hobbit. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. All right. So, in the interest of getting getting toward the end here, I think we've we've said a lot about this film. I think there's a lot of meat to chew on here. But just in general, uh, let's just do a, a round of uh, ratings. Um, Joseph, how would you rate this film? Four out of five stars. Okay. I I just think that I'm going to return to this time and time again. I'm going to enjoy it for what it is, the roller coaster ride that it is. I I, I will enjoy it, and ultimately i'm glad it doesn't try to outdo something like lord of the rings and fall flat on its face um i have to agree it doesn't feel like a consistent adaptation of the book although i'm i'm satisfied with it and i think that when it, once it comes out on blu-ray i'll probably introduce it to my kids fairly soon i, I feel good about enjoying this with uh, friends and family for a long time to come okay marcus did you, did you want the, the the star rating? Yeah, like we we do it on a scale of five at Movie yes, Bite. So if, it was a four point Okay, I expected I said, to hear you say five. <laughs> well, I said it was amazing. I didn't say it was incredible. Okay, just just for just for reference sake, what would you rate as a five? Do you have a movie that you would call a five? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. Okay, so nothing would hit. Probably probably any Pixar movie ever made. Including, Except for in, Cars. I was going to say, cars including too. Cars 2? No. And what about Brave? Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> okay. Pretty much Pixar. Okay. And yeah. uh, Clark, how would you rate this film? I'd give it uh, 3.5. I think it's a good film. I don't think it's as good as the Lord of the Rings films. I don't think it's as good as Tolkien's The Hobbit. But uh, it is nonetheless a, a compelling fantasy film on its own terms, and I do see potential for the sequels to improve on uh, some of the weaknesses of this first installment. I'll, of course, continue on with the series out of both interest and duty, but um, a, a mild disappointment in some regards. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of in that same page. In fact, in the uh, review I finally got posted earlier today, I rated the film three and a half of five stars. And and you know that that is on the positive side of my scale. As I said, you know I consider two and a half neutral. Anything under two and a half is means that I I had dislike for it, and uh-huh. anything above two and a half means it's on the positive side of the scale. And and so I, I call it a three and a half star film. And just just for reference, uh, I rated uh, the Matrix, the original Matrix film, five stars. So, um, so I, I do consider that a little better than this, but it, it was a good film and, uh, it, it was worth watching and I will, I will have it on home video when it comes out. I will probably not get the extended editions like I have of Lord of the Rings, but, uh, yeah, it, it was a good film and worth watching. Hater. What? <laughs> hater. Hater. Oh. Why, why am I a hater? I just rated it positively. No. How could you not want to get the extended editions? Because I already feel like the films are too long. <laughs> do you know that? Do you know that you can put nine hours of HD video on one Blu-ray disc? 
I am aware, yes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. The day will come. Well. It will. It'll, it'll be I, I, a I nine sort of, hour. I sort of hate you right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, the, but the transfer would suffer to some extent if you really did put nine hours yeah, on Yeah, they'd probably have to Blu-ray compress disc. it down pretty yeah. good, so. Well, hey, uh, Clark and Marcus, I wanted to say thanks a bunch for being on here. Do y'all have anything specific y'all want to add? I just want to say thank you guys so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk movies with you. And Oh, uh, thanks. Look forward to the next time. All right. We'll direct people to be able to find out uh, more of your work, uh, both of you guys, on the website. We'll have profiles set up for you. But just uh, is there any uh, anywhere that people can find to follow you, Clark? Uh, people can find uh, a good chunk of my work on dvdverdict.com. That's where I review DVDs and Blu-rays, and that's where you can also find my weekly podcast, The Sounds and Sights of Cinema, which places the spotlight on film music. All right. And Marcus, where can people uh, look, find out more about you and follow you the stuff that you do? Yes, if you go to uh, facebook.com slash crownrights, twitter.com slash crownrights, and crownrights.org, you can... See the YouTube videos I make. All right, they are good uh, stuff. Joseph, where can where can people keep up with you? Mm, uh, just go to josephdarnell.com, redirects you to my Facebook profile. I'm also on Twitter at Twitter, so that's just uh, twitter.com/slash Twitter. I mean, uh, Joseph Darnell. There you go. I was about to correct that. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> no, that'd be too convenient. And uh, and my personal site is jivingjackalope.com. All right, and on Twitter, I am TJ Draper Pro, Facebook.com slash TJ Draper, and my personal uh, web design and film editing. Uh, if you want to hire me to do any of that, you can find me at buzzingpixelcreative.com. And of course, we post every day, I post every day on moviebyte.com, and would love for you to visit that site every day and uh, check it out. And next week, we're going to be talking about Jack Reacher. I'm I'm excited to see the film, and I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Joseph, are we scheduled for any guests on that podcast? Or is that uh, just not you just and me? yet. All right, yeah, good. it might just be you and me. Back to the old podcast. All right. Well, guys, thank you for joining. <laughs> Does that mean us. I'll never be invited back? Ah, uh, I'll, I'll have to think about that one, Marcus. No, no, I'm I'm sure you you'll be endorse that, on that Google topic. phone. So yeah, well, if you can, you, we can't let you mention Android anymore on this this thing. So <laughs> or you will be censored. <laughs> yes, I, I, I may go in and censored as it is. But anyway, guys, thank you so much for being here. It was a lot of fun, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to both of you again at some point in the future. Thank you for having me. All right.